Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Welcome back, everyone, to Patriot Coalition Live. I'm Jason Morocek. Thanks for joining us today. Our goal on this podcast is to create a timeless resource to teach about the U.S. Constitution and the proper role of government, the importance of America's Judeo-Christian heritage, and how to defend against threats to our republic. So before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to talk to you really quickly about something that you can do today to begin rooting out one of the major sources of corruption in America. That source of corruption is what we call the three-headed beast of mainstream media, big tech, and big business. Now, as you probably know, these mega corporations are actively undermining our liberties through censorship, canceling, and destroying the livelihoods of Americans because they don't like dissent and they don't like people who share truths which threaten their power. Now, earlier this year, Google, Apple, and Amazon Web Services, they all canceled Parler or stopped giving access to Parler. Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter regularly suspend accounts when they don't like their posts. So why continue to send your money to Amazon when they are canceling and censoring those who stand up for liberty, when you can spend your hard-earned dollars with freedom-loving companies who share your values and your principles? A company like conservativeeconomy.com. Now, conservativeeconomy.com has tons of companies to shop from with over 3,700 categories of products. So chances are you're going to find what you're looking for at conservativeeconomy.com. Now, if you shop at a business where that you love and you think that they would be a great fit for conservativeeconomy.com, go to our contact page and let us know. And if you own a business... Go to the sell here link at conservativeeconomy.com and tell us about your business. Again, that website is conservativeeconomy.com. Please check us out today. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Uh, the title for today is Article 2, Section 1, Presidential Term and Elections, Part 1. Now, uh, as I alluded to last episode, we're going to start discussing Article 2 uh, this week, which is all about the executive branch of government led by the President of the United States, or sometimes we uh, use the short term as the acronym of POTUS. So uh, let's get into the, the text of Article 2, Section 1. Uh, it, the Clause 1 says, the executive power shall be vested in a President of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and together with the vice president chosen for the same term be elected as follows. And that is the end of the clause. It ends with a colon because in the following clauses, it's going to describe how the president and the vice president are chosen. Okay, so let's break this one down. It's pretty simple, but we're going to break it down anyway. Uh, when it talks about the executive power, uh, th there is a, a specific set of, I shouldn't say specific, they had uh, things in mind when they said executive power, the, meaning the, the framers of the Constitution in the Constitutional Convention. Uh, when they said executive power, th they knew what they meant. And um, it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, up to today, you know, everyone seems to know that executive power deals with executing the laws. 
but I wanted to just bring us back to the uh, the Constitutional Convention where they actually discussed these things. Uh, and then that way it can kind of solidify in your minds um, that it is, it does say what it what we think it means. Okay, so uh, from, if you recall, the one of the first proposals when they convened the Constitutional Convention came from Edmund Randolph from Virginia. And they called these the Randolph Resolutions. He came prepared and he basically laid down, hey, hey let's start here. In my vernacular, I call this a dartboard. It's In my mind, it's much easier to start with something than to start from scratch. So if, if someone comes to the table and says, hey, let's start here, and then we can just make adjustments as we go. We can say what we like, what we don't like. That's kind of what Randolph did. And in, in one of his um, resolutions, he talks about the executive authority. Uh, and, and as he describes this executive power, he says, quote, besides a general authority to execute the national laws, and then he goes on to say a few other things. So um, it, this is one illustration when the delegates were talking about executive power, they were talking about the execution of national of national laws. There was another proposal by James Madison. Um, and in that one, he said, quote, with power to carry into execution the national laws. Uh, so again, the executive power dealt with the execution of national laws. And then uh, James Wilson, another delegate, he described um, and then Madison also agreed with him. He says executive powers are designed for the execution of laws and appointing officers not otherwise to be appointed. And we will see that in the Constitution as well later on when it talks about uh, setting up the departments uh, under the executive branch. Okay, so again, executive power just means that they have the authority to execute laws amongst a, another couple, couple things that we will talk about in future episodes. Uh, and then it talks about the term, right? Uh, it, as we know today, the term of a president is four years, right? But you may not have known this, but initially they were talking about doing one seven-year term with no option to be reelected. And they batted that around a little bit and then they ultimately decided on four years. And then this, this also may sound crazy to you, but today it's you know, we don't even think twice about it, but there is one president of the United States. There's one head of the executive department, the executive branch of our uh, central government. That wasn't always a uh, assumed, right? There were actually uh, a couple different people in the Constitutional Convention proposed that we have three uh, co-executives at the top of the executive branch of the government. Um, they talked about the pros and cons you know, the major ones were, you know, hey, one person uh, who has the ability to make a decision with, you know, vigor and dispatch, meaning, you know, the, the strength of, of his will and um, the, the quickness, the decisiveness is much better than three people who might have different opinions and will have to come to some sort of terms amongst themselves before they execute. Um, you know, others argued that, you know, it would be better to have three executives because you could pull them from different parts of the country so that everyone feels like they're represented. And then, uh, you know, the, you know, a counter argument to that was, uh, yes, but if you have these three people from pulling from different parts, now you have factions and uh, factions being not necessarily a great thing all the time. These factions can work against each other and uh, and kind of pull the, the union apart. So 
a lot of discussion going on about, uh, you know, how many executive uh, authorities there are. And, you know, thankfully, at least from my perspective, we settled on just one. I tend to agree that somebody that can, you know, uh, be informed and execute a decision with, as we used to call in the army, with violence of execution, you know, quickly make a decision and do it. Um, but here's, here's another perspective. Pierce Butler, one of the delegates from South Carolina, uh, he said this about, you know, the choosing one executive versus three. Uh, he, meaning Pierce Butler, said his opinion on this point had been formed under the opportunity he had he had had of seeing the manner in which a plurality of military heads distracted Holland when threatened with invasion by the Imperial troops. One man was for directing the force to the defense of of this part, another to that part of the country, just as happened to be swayed by prejudice or interest. Right. So from his, his experience with, you know, knowing about Holland, um, he had seen what a, a plurality of executives might do to a country, and he was he was opposed to that. So again, ultimately, we settled on just one executive for four years. Um, and as we'll talk in, in the amendments, that uh, they are able to be reelected uh, for one additional term. Okay, so that was a, pr- a pretty quick and in, in, uh, an easy one to decipher. The second clause in Article Two, Section One says. Quote, each state shall appoint, uh, let me back up. So remember at the very end of clause one, it talks about um, shall be chosen for the same term, meaning four years, be elected as follows. And then remember it had that that colon. Well, here is the first clause that follows after that colon that talks about how that they are elected. Okay, so article two, section one, clause two, which you may have heard about in the past year um, since the 2020 presidential election. It says, quote, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. Okay. So a little bit of a mouthful there. So let's kind of break this down. So first of all, um, an elector, uh, an elector in this sense, as we will see as this uh, article folds out or unfolds, they are referring to a presidential elector, not all electors, but just presidential electors. And an elector is someone who is authorized to cast a vote for a candidate seeking office. So you and I, if we're registered to vote, we are electors. Uh, we can elect, you know, our, you know, county commissioners, our sheriff, our state legislature, our members of Congress, etc. We are electors. Anybody who's authorized to cast a vote for a candidate seeking office is an elector. But this elector they're talking about, capital E, is considered a presidential elector, somebody who is authorized to elect the president of the United States. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, let, let's break the, the wording down a little bit once, once more. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, meaning each state's legislature gets to decide you, by their laws how that state will appoint the electors from their states. Now, it also tells us how many electors. Each state will have the number of electors that's equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. So 
if you um, if you take the number of representatives that your state has and you add to it two for the number of senators that is in Congress, that will be the number of electors your state will have to cast a vote for president of the United States. Okay, so that's the number of them. And then it also talks about a eligibility. The, it does not limit eligibility, except that there is no one in that works and is paid from by the central government that holds a position in the central government and is paid by them. They cannot be a, an elector, a presidential elector, right? It says, but no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. Profit meaning, hey, they're going to make money as a, a holding an office in the central government or this, you know, they say the United States, they cannot be appointed an elector. Okay. So why is this, I mean, clearly this is an important section, but um, as you may recall, uh, the election of 2020 brought this section to light, or at least it, it did after, you know, enough people that were educated about it actually started speaking about it, right? I, I don't think it got enough attention early enough for it to make a difference. Right, so in 2020, as you recall, there was a lot of shenanigans, a lot of, um, uh, there was a lot of fraud in several states. And if you remember, there was, you know, four states, well, really five were, were at issue. There was Wisconsin, there was Michigan, there was Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona. All of those, um, you know, he held Republican legislatures at the time, right? Now, um, the, the Constitution does not say when the electors must be appointed. They leave that to Congress under the Necessary and Proper Clause. Congress gets to decide when those are appointed. And as it turns out, they are actually appointed on Election Day, on um, uh, you know the first Tuesday following the first month or the Tuesday following the first Monday in November. So essentially, the uh, Election Day. So, what does this mean? Um, and it, so if you've been a longtime listener of this podcast, you probably rec rec uh, remember our episode four. We did a whole episode, a special episode on the election madness of 2020. And so some of this may be review for you. But for those who may not have been there, um, what this this clause says, Article two, Section one, Clause two, and you can go back and, and read it for yourself. What it says is that regardless of how the vote, the popular vote turns out. Notice that this clause said nothing about the popular vote. The people who elect the president are not the, the general public. They are not the people who are registered to vote. They are the electors appointed by each state legislature. Now, it just so happens that all the legislatures, um, they appoint their electors based on how the, the general public votes in the popular election. And that is true today. But it, you know, if that legislature is in session during the election, they have every authority to go in and change the way that they appoint electors. So Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, all of them held Republican majorities in their state legislatures. So if enough of any one of these state legislatures believed there was enough fraud, there was enough shenanigans, uh, there was you know problems with the voting system. <clears throat> if their executive authority, meaning their governor and their secretary of state were not following 
their own, the, the laws created by that state, these legislatures could have with, you know, the stroke of a pen repealed or amended their election law, their presidential elector law to appoint specific electors that would vote um, in the way that that legislature felt the, uh, the vote should have gone if you cancel out all of the fraud, all of the abuse of power, uh, all of the technical issues and so forth. So we could have had a much different uh, election had enough people stood up in the state legislatures and said, this is out of hand. We're not gonna let a bunch of, of bullies who, you know, both in the uh, executive branches and some judicial branches who are not hearing the cases, who are not necessarily um, providing just outcomes of some of these uh, election cases, they could have set aside, you know, the, the popular vote uh, based on the, some of the fraudulent returns coming in and said, you know, we are going to appoint electors who are going to uh, vote for the, who we believe is the true winner of the election. Now, obviously you wouldn't want to do this before all the votes are counted because you don't know how it's going to turn out. But as you start to see all of the evidence of fraud and abuse come in and the um, abuse of power from the judicial branch, um, it, it is incumbent upon our elected officials to represent us and to make sure that the, the right outcome uh, is, uh, is one at the end of the day, right? So a little bit of a dangerous precedent because, you know, are the, were the roles reverse, that same set of, uh, you know, a legislature who is in a different party, they may just say, you know, I don't care what the elections say. I don't care if there's fraud or not. We're going to make sure that we elect uh, electors who are going to vote for the candidate that we want, right? So it's a tough precedent, but um, you know, I, I think if that happens, you know, I think enough people would, would be pretty upset and uh, kick them out of office, right? So that's how the process is supposed to work. So that's why this clause is so important. Um, and I know everyone loves to pay attention to presidential politics and national politics, but this is why, you know, you, there's the phrase, all politics is local. Um, th this is one example of that where state politics is, is critical, especially your state legislature. So pay attention. I mean, that if in my mind from this episode, that is the takeaway from here, besides obviously understanding what the Constitution says about the president of the United States and how the electors are, are chosen, the takeaway is make sure you are paying attention to who your state representative and state senator is as well. And get involved in those races to make sure you have somebody, somebody who has the intestinal fortitude to stand up and author a bill that says, look, th this election is out of hand. We need to set aside the uh, the electors based on popular vote, and we need to direct, uh, directly appoint electors who are going to uh, give a just outcome. Somebody who has the intestinal fortitude to do that, you have to, you should be electing in your state legislature. Okay, so to, to summarize uh, this episode, we really began our discussion of Article 2, um, which is all about and addresses the executive branch, consisting of the President of the United States and his departments. Section one, I'm sorry, clause one establishes the office of the president of the United States and sets the term at four years. Sec, uh, clause two 
tells us that the state legislatures have the sole authority to appoint presidential electors. It tells us that each state will have the number of electors equal to their state's number of U.S. representatives and senators combined, and that no one who holds a position in the central government, government of the United States, and is paid uh, a salary can be a presidential elector. Okay, so kind of a quick episode today. It's going to get us started in Article 2. Um, in our next episode, we're, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, at a minimum, Clause 3. We're going to start to discuss how the, the votes are cast by the electors and how we determine who the President of the United States is based on those, those votes. Okay, so if you would like to support us, please go to patriotcoalitionlive.com support. Your support is a big help to us and is very much appreciated. We appreciate all of our listeners. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts at places like iHeartRadio and Spotify. Uh, You just have to search for Patriot Coalition Live. And thanks again, everyone. We will see you here next time. Take care. 